comedy channel. We have no motto. The comedy channel. You laugh until you stop. Comedy is our middle name. And channel will be our last name then, right? Yeah. The comedy channel. Three-dimensional programming on a two-dimensional screen. Brought to you by a one-dimensional person. What the hell? Mottos come and go. The comedy channel. This isn't Russian. But we're always there when you need us. Get the picture? The comedy channel. The comedy channel. Funny. Free. You are listening to the Constant Comedy Podcast with Art Bell and Vinny Favalli. Welcome to the Constant Comedy Podcast. I am Spartacus. <laughs> and I'm Spartacus Jr. <laughs> You're Spartacus Bell. I am Spartacus Favalli. Was Spartacus his last name or first name? I think that was the whole, I think Sparta was his first name and Cuss was his last name. <laughs> I should know that. I'm such an idiot. I don't even know. Is that even a name or a thing? And then at one point, everyone became Spartacus. But I think that was solidarity, right? <laughs> I am Art Bell. No, I am Art Bell. <laughs> we're all Spartacus on this bus. Okay, let's get serious, okay? Because we, we got a podcast Spartacus. to do. Here. Yes, we all do. Right. Okay, and we have a guest that we're, if she shows up, because let me tell you, we had to jump through a lot of hoops to lock in Betsy Bournes, who has a great name. <laughs> it's like... A great alliteration. Is, you know, if you got to have a name, that's a good one to have. Yeah, I mean, that's something with Lois Lane, Betsy Bourne. <laughs> Betsy Bourne. You know, <laughs> I just got to say this. So many astronauts have great names, like Sally Ride. You know, that like, oh, my God, it's yes. a great name. That is you incredible. Can't, you can't, How about like, you, Neil Armstrong? Neil Armstrong. If your name is Brenda Snorkelstein, <laughs> like, you're not getting into the astronaut program. You know what yeah. I'm saying? Karen okay. Snodgrass. That's not going to work. <laughs> Not happening. Not happening. I anyway, like that. So that's the beginning of like a standard routine. What's the deal with astronaut names? <laughs> <laughs> you ever notice that astronauts have great names? Yeah, we but, could have been stand-ups, but instead we didn't do that. Well, listen, as we get older, sitting down is much more appealing. Really? Uh, so anyway, yeah, Betsy uh, was kind of hard to pin down. I mean, a lot of great communication. We had it nailed three times and then had to recancel once, I think, and I can't wait to get the backstory of this. Remember, Art, she said like she was taking a crash course in Yiddish. Yeah, an immersive course in an Yiddish. Immersive. I don't <laughs> know where you go. Where do you go? You, go to the low you, gotta, take the, you gotta take the way back machine and go to, you know, I, I 16th know. century Poland. So I, I can't wait to get into that. Uh, yeah, that'll be good. But 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 you know, she's written for friends, uh Roseanne. She ran her own show that she developed with um, Will Smith and Jada Pickett Smith. So, yeah, this is going to be great. So let's not waste another minute and let's see if Betsy Bourne shows up. You ready, Art? I am ready. Okay, let's do this. Our next guest is somewhat of a mystery woman. In fact, I'm not entirely convinced that she even exists. I'll explain <laughs> in a minute. Art and I worked with Betsy Bournes at the launch of Comedy Central in 1991. While there, she was a producer on one of the network's signature pieces called 30, 60, 90s. Remember that one, Art? 
I do. I love 3690. Same here. Among many other things that she did at Comedy Central that we can't wait to talk about. Her career skyrocketed after she left us, and Art and I remained in a quiet, steady orbit, watching her success from a distance. So basically, we were Michael Collins, may he rest in peace, to her, Neil Armstrong. She was a writer and producer on two of the greatest sitcoms of all time, Roseanne and Friends. She wrote the classic Friends episode, the one with the baby on the bus that featured the now famous Smelly Cat song. She went on to write and produce a wide variety of sitcoms including Bob Newhart's Return to Primetime, which was on CBS, George and Leo. And in 2003, Betsy co-created with Will Smith and Jada Pinkett the long-running sitcom All of Us. She has a new book out called Talk to Myself, which has an origin story that rivals Bruce Wayne's Batman origins. All right, wait till you hear how that happened. I can't wait. So here's the thing. With everything that Betsy has accomplished in her career, you would think that researching her for this interview would have been a cinch. But other than her IMDb page, she has zero presence on the internet. Not even a Wikipedia page. Art, everybody has a Wikipedia page. I even have one. You know who else has one? Smelly Cat has its own Wikipedia page. I am not kidding, but not Betsy. You know, this is starting to remind me of the Red Buttons Never Got a Dinner bit from the (laughs) Dean Martin Roasts. So every time I search for Betsy Borns and I put it in quotes, Google would politely ask, did you mean Betsy Borns? who happens to be a very successful TV drama writer herself. After a week of searching, Betsy Bourne's name finally came up in my Google results. Hallelujah. But it turned out to be an interview Art and I did where we mentioned her name. How meta is that? <laughs> but then I hit the mother load and probably the thing we are most excited to talk to Betsy about. I discovered she had written Comic Lives, a book that came out in 1987, which was a deep, deep dive into the world of stand-up comedy. It's truly a time capsule. For a podcast called Constant Comedy, that was going to be gold. I went to Amazon, where the only copy available was selling for $8.95. Wait, all right, that's $895. I know, I I swear to God. I am validating that. I am not kidding. I was finally able to find a digitized copy at the Internet Archive Library. And by digitized, I really mean it was Xeroxed but God, was it worth the effort. Betsy spoke to everyone on the comedy scene from the 60s, 70s, and 80s and jam-packed so much information and backstories that I actually now think it's worth the high price. Betsy made so many changes while scheduling this interview that we honestly thought she was catfishing us. So Betsy, if that's really you, welcome to the Constant Comedy Podcast. Yes, welcome. By the way, sorry, this is Betsy Bourne's the drama writer. So uh, this is the <laughs> funny interview you've oh ever. Oh my God! Tell us about Grace Anatomy. Oh my, do you do you know her? I don't, but I'm very friendly with Debbie Allen, who uh, directs and produces Grey's Anatomy. So I hear about everyone from her. Oh my God, it's so funny. Yeah, I mean, and so and why no Wikipedia page? Is that something you've just never? Um, I don't know how. No one, uh, my husband has one. All my friends have them, but I'm just, I don't know. My son always says, why don't you have a Wikipedia page? And I say, I don't know. Can you make one? I don't, I don't really. You got to get your, you got to get your friends or family to do it. You can't do it yourself. That's kind of weird. That's the weird thing. Yeah. So, so how close are your friends? Not that close, I guess, huh? Yeah. That's, (laughs) that's the weird thing is now before I felt like it was my fault. Now I just feel unpopular. It's, yeah. <laughs> I, I didn't realize other people make them for you. Could someone actually be trying to humiliate me? But but I've never been before now. So I'm grateful to have done the show. I think it's cool to not have one now, actually, because you're in yeah, a minority. That, yeah, that no may be cool. Well, but, I was I was the person you probably know. I was always known as the hat lady. Um, because I remember. I, yes, I remember. Everyone said, 
that's your, uh, you're the mystery lady and, and that's your uh, signature. And it's really just that one day I didn't feel like doing my hair and I wore the hat and everyone said, great hat. Um, and so I wore a hat every day, different hats and people just, that was my signature, but they didn't know I didn't want to do my hair. And before I went to Fox, somebody said, you know, if you wear that hat at Fox, Barry Diller's going to knock it off your head. And so I stopped wearing the hat. Uh, when I anyway, when I was at Fox, and I started again when I went into comedy. I well, I it's a, I had this vivid memory of you at the HBO Downtown Studios, with uh, Bonnie, with Bonnie Burns. There's a, there's a Bonnie Burns. I mean, these are both agents. Burns yeah. City, Bonnie Burns, Betsy Boards. Um, do you know Bonnie Burns? You remember her? Are you kidding? I was there at the start. With no, Bonnie. I know. I mean, are you still in touch with her? You know, I'm not. And and does she have a Wikipedia page? Because everyone thought no, she doesn't. Absolutely. The, the coolest people do not have Wikipedia pages, I've decided. Me, so. me Bonnie Burns and Obama. But apparently he got one. <laughs> oh, he did so, get one? Yes, he finally got one. Um, but yes, I knew Bonnie. Um, and, you know, everyone thought we were each other. Um, but I haven't talked to her in a long time. So tell us, like, how... There's so much to talk about. Before we get to the book, how did you end up at Comedy Channel? Because that's where, that's our connection. That's where right. we went to high school together, I guess. Exactly. Um, well, I don't know if I should start at the beginning. My love of comedy, where it sort of crested at the Comedy Channel, I grew up in Indiana. I don't like to brag, but Marion <laughs> County, Indiana. And I'll tell you, I was the only person um, who was a big fan of red buttons when I was seven. So I was not a popular child. Um, <laughs> one of my early memories is begging my parents to take me to see Slappy White uh, in, in Gary, Indiana um, yeah. at a club. So this is my, I loved comedy from the time I was a child. I was the class clown, um, but I never felt comfortable writing comedy. I mean, as a kid, obviously, but as I, I, I went to college, I uh, booked all the comedians at college, and but I was a an economics major. Where did you go to school? Brandeis. Okay. It was the first place I met other Jews. Honestly, I was from Indiana. <laughs> I know, being a Jew from Indiana, right. wow. Not that's... just me. I thought, you know, when they talked about being a minority, I actually thought it was just me. Um, well, so you not I, only met other Jews, you met all the other Jews who were going to college Jews. that time. I went to Israel, <laughs> and they were like, you went to Brandeis? That's where all the Jews are. <laughs> so, by the way, Israel's gotten so Jewish. No one asked, but I'm just telling you. So uh, I loved comedy, um, and I I thought I was I wanted to go to Wharton. I wanted to go, you know, be be a financial person. And I realized the day I graduated, I just want to be in comedy. So um, I didn't know anyone. And I finally, the first connection I made was my next door neighbor, Kathy Tuckman, had a cousin who knew someone who knew Barbara Lieberman at Saturday Night Live. So I showed up every day wearing a dress and everything, not realizing I got uh -huh. hired to load stuff into, into trucks. But that's where I met Lori Zacks. Um, so she was the first person in showbiz who was nice to me. And the day Lori Zacks said hi to me, uh, I thought I'm in showbiz. Um, and I worked at Saturday Night Live. I was afraid to write. So I was around, this is the story of my career till I became a comedy writer. I was afraid to write comedy. So I was really close to comedians kind of hoping. Um, and I'll move on from there. But my, the closest I came at Saturday Night Live to being a comedy writer was I was the as assistant to the executive producer. And every week I'd write sketches. 
and uh, he wasn't the executive producer. I turned into him and he'd go, these are good, but you know, women don't really write comedy. And so, yeah, I mean, on this show, there were, there were two women writers um, though, and uh, high turnover. But the night I finally thought I was recognized, uh, my boss, we'd had Don Rickles on the show and he sent a bag of like 200 pounds of peanuts. And my boss said, why don't you go over and hang out with the writers? And I thought, this is it. And uh, I got there and someone pulled over the giant bag of peanuts and he said, why don't you shell some peanuts? Oh my God. <laughs> so oh my God. Stephanie being involved as a writer was just sitting there in another room crying like, <laughs> shucking nuts. Oh my God. No, so wait now, when you were at SNL, I think, was that the Gene Domanian year or the Dick Ebersole? I got there. I got to Saturday Night Live shortly after Lori. I missed Domanian. I was there during the Ebersol years. Okay, when Ebersol took, he was the head of late night and then he ended up producing it. Exactly. Um, and and that's how we ended up with Brandon Tartikoff as a host because he had been Bill's, Bill, Dick's best friend at Yale. Anyway, so I was there during that. Eddie Murphy. Right, Jeff um, Piscopo. Right. And I remember walking down the street with Eddie Murphy before, um, before his first movie came out. And it was like, all right. Um, and then the day after it came out, no one cared about him the night before. And the, right. the day after, it was just mobbed. That was 48 mobbed. hours. That, right. right. That, that was a movie. Right. And then people then in New York, it was a big thing where taxi drivers would not pick up African-American people in Midtown. So he was, I was the woman who, I was the white lady who part of my job was going out and getting cabs. Uh, for Eddie's best friend, who was a writer on the show. And I'd go out and go, uh, cab, cab. And they'd stop. It was like, Clint, come on out. Um, oh, my God. So, yeah, that was a different New York. Um, but again, those that was my start. And Lori really taught me about show business. I didn't know anything. And, she, you know, she booked everything. And she, she got into it before I did. We didn't get there, you know, at, that far apart. But she taught me so much um, as far as recognizing and booking talent um, and, and just how to, how to spot people, how things worked. Um, and she was kind to me. And I heard Lori on your show where she said, um, you know, she's very good at revenge. She's very good at her job, but um, <laughs> her side hustle is revenge. That and, was hysterical. Lori oh was our God. first guest to remind oh. everyone listening here. Lori's at. Oh, I can tell you, here's, here's an example of Lori's revenge. When we were together producing Later with Bob Costas, um, you know, I'm wondering why I don't have a Wikipedia page now that I think about it. Because, <laughs> yeah, you're uh, killing me. I don't think you knew that. You know what? So, we'll do one for you. Yeah. Uh, an assistant at the show played a trick on Lori. And Lori used to buy a lottery ticket every day. And this woman changed a number on hers the day after the results came out and Lori thought she won and was so excited and it was so funny and when this woman told her I mean Lori told everyone uh Lori said you will never work in show business again oh my god that's a B- famous that's line she made her. that she made that line famous right and when I tell you that that woman 
not only never worked in show business, I she was English. I think Lori got her deported. I honestly, and I don't think she worked back in England. I, I take great pride. My greatest point of pride in show business is that Lori has been the best friend I've ever had and never in any way been vengeful. So anyway, but that's a Lori story. Oh, okay, this is great. Lots to unpack here. I want to get back. So I guess we really should go chronologically. What? what because the book came out in 1987, right? Now, right. this book, I, I can't understate how impressive this book is to people out there. Wh where where did the book come in relation to Saturday Night Live? Was the book the first thing you did? After Saturday Night Live, I mean, at Saturday Night Live, I thought, I really want to write, and I'm never going to get a shot here. Um, and Herb Sargent, who's been at the show since the beginning and was a genius, came to me Legendary. and said, yes said, Betsy, I think your stuff is funny. You're never going to get a job here. And so I said, okay. So shortly after that, um, I was someplace and somebody said, oh, the, the editor of Interview Magazine is here. And I thought, yeah, magazine. So I sort of sidled up and spilled a drink on her. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, my God. Like in a rom-com. Um, and oh, what do you do? <laughs> oh, I read Saturday Night Live. Anyway, I end up getting a job as her assistant. So after Saturday Night Live, I'm in the white hot center of the Andy Warhol world. And cool. I work cool. for Interview Magazine. Um, and I was around the hippest people. You know, it's like, oh, Mick Jagger came to lunch with Andy. And, you know, I'm hanging out with Andy. And and all I can think of is, I want to do comedy. I want to be Slappy White's Orbit. And... Um, <laughs> So I was stuck at the desk of this woman answering phone calls, my dream job. And, you know, when I'm not with Warhol, I'm answering calls from agents. <laughs> um, and so I'm thinking, how do I stop being, this is what I did at Saturday Night Live. How do I stop being at a desk? And so I thought, okay, I'm going to interview a comedian. And the first comedian I interviewed was Jay Leno, who, you know, it was like, yeah, Jay Leno was just a comedian. And I did it for the magazine and then Andy liked it. And so he said, I want you to do something called the seven faces of comedy with new people. So the people I did were Whoopi Goldberg, Joel Hodgson, Jay Leno. Um, I mean, it was just like- was, Gil everybody... was Gilbert one of them? Was Gilbert one of them back then? No, but <laughs> another great story about Gilbert. I became really close to Gilbert and I'll tell you about that later. And he, okay. we were best friends because I did an impression of Bill Cosby underwater um, <laughs> calling Joey Adams. It's a very complicated okay. I, I, uh, You got to do it now. You, you yeah. have to, yeah, 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 yeah. I'll have to drink, uh, hold on. <laughs> well, you see, it, it was, yeah, anyway. <laughs> and, you know, so. It, oh my God. So I do comedy. And then I start interviewing like Alan King and every, you know, Warhol's like, I don't know who these people are. And he's like, anyway, uh, so I think, how do I get away from the desk? I'm still here. They made me an editor. I still was like, now I'm at another desk, but it's my own desk. So I decide I'm going to write a book about comedy. I literally read, looked up, what is the biggest publishing house? Simon and Schuster. So I call Simon and Schuster and 
somebody knew somebody who was an assistant editor. I get this guy and goes, yeah, why don't you come in and, and pitch the book? I go in and pitch the book, sold. And so then I go to the library, literally I get a book on how to write a book. Uh, <laughs> after having read the book on how to pitch a book, um, how to write a book. So I get a book on how to write a book while I'm at an interview. I start writing a book. I have no idea what I'm doing. Um, and, and so I just start interviewing people. And I said, oh, I have a deal with Simon & Schuster. The company who I didn't know of, who doesn't know I can't write a book, and I don't even know comedians. So I just start doing it. And then comedy was starting to turn into a real business. So I interview people like Rick Fields and, you know, who, who was- And uh, uh, Catch a Rising Star, right? Exactly. And then I start hanging out there like I'm a comedian. I spend every Friday and Saturday night, I'm still working at interview, every Friday and Saturday night, all night at the clubs um, and start meeting comedians and met everyone. I mean, from Seinfeld to Leno, everyone who was coming up then, um, Paul Reiser, Stephen Wright. Oh, Stephen Wright was in my Seven Faces of Comedy. Yeah, um, that was, a, that, and, and you really told, I mean, you told, I knew some of these stories like the Comedy Store Strike and Stephen Wright's Tonight Show story, but no one tells it better than you. I mean, oh, seriously, very, you, you, did, you nice. did a really great job. Uh, and, you know, Larry Miller, Alan Havey, Robert Wall, Belzer, and some of these names, they were actually, they were well known at the time, but the thing about stand-up, unlike rock and roll, you graduate the small club, you do the big place. Back then, even when Seinfeld was doing his TV show the early years, he would still go back to those clubs. So you right. you had access to everyone. Well, it was, I'll tell you, Gil, I met Gilbert Godfrey that way. And the funny connection, um, the, the way I, the Seinfeld connection there is Peter Melman, who was, wrote, you know, on every episode, he's the guy who, who created the yada yada, yeah. everything. The way I met him through Gilbert is, Peter used to be a big magazine writer. He also is really close to Gail Berman and Gail's husband, just to tie it all in. Who was also a comedian, Gail's husband. Exactly, Bill Masters, brilliant. Right. Brilliant writer um, and a great guy. But but um, so for the article for GQ, Peter Melman was writing um, a biography and he said to Gilbert, do you have, can I get your friends? And he said, my only friend is Betsy Bournes. And I'm like, well, that's just because of the Bill Cosby impression. He must really not have friends. <laughs> so that's how I met Peter Melman, who went on to write Seinfeld. Right. And um, I think Peter introduced me to Larry David. I can't remember the, the connection there. Larry was on the circuit back then, too, right? Oh, I don't sure. know if he, was, he, he was in your book, right? Yeah. No, yeah. actually, Larry wasn't. Um, he was really shy. So was Gilbert. Gilbert would not. He used to call me, talk to me on tape because I talked to him for hours. And then I'd say, talk to me on tape. And now, just to torment me, I don't know. Um, but anyway, um, so the, the book came out and um, a lot of it was about the business of stand-up comedy. The only time I've ever gotten to use my economics degree. Um, <laughs> but but uh, it, it was the greatest, you know, it was the greatest time writing it because there had been no club scene you know since the 50s really where where you know it's like and now the comedian after the floor show you know it was just it was a different right. time and i 
again, like Saturday Night Live, I wasn't confident enough to write comedy, which I really wanted to do. So again, oh great, I'm surrounded by comedians, which I love, but you know, I'm not writing comedy. So at interview, um, I one of the people I interviewed was Stu Smiley for the book, you know, and Michael Fuchs and part Chris of it. Albrecht. What's that? Chris Albrecht, who was at the improv at the time. Everybody, exactly. Interesting um, you interviewed Michael. You know, that that's uh, of the people who kind of don't belong. I would put him there. I mean, he was a big force in comedy, I know. Right. But, you know, I even See, think that was really Chris smart. It's more important because Chris was a stand up. You know, he started there. Oh, exactly. It, it's and the people who were stand ups, some of the you know, it's it's sort of like some of the people who went on to other jobs who you find out were stand ups is shocking. Like if I found out Stalin had been a stand up, I would not be surprised. Um, <laughs> I mean, funny guy, let's be honest, but you know, it was like, I, you know, I'd interview business people, you know, who had been comics and you asked me um, at, at one point if I'd ever performed standup. Right. And I think I told you why, um, which yes. is- that Share that, that's a great story. I, I always wanted to do comedy. And when I was um, at camp in, uh, in, in Indiana, um, I was talked into doing Born Free for the talent show. And uh, I went out and I got to Born Free. <gasps> I got the hiccup so violently that, I mean, I was actually, it was eight year olds booing me. I, I think, you know, if there was ripe <laughs> fruit, I would have gotten hit with, with a, a sickening plum. So I, I looked at the side and there was a, you know, counselors there and I said, you're gonna stay on. And so I stayed on getting booed by six-year-olds, honestly. Um, and so I was traumatized for life. Um, so stand-up wasn't going to be for you. It was not for me, but it was kind of always a dream. Um, and the only other time that has come up is, is when I went on a trip to India, of all things, with Mavis Lano. Some people, I'm very close to Mavis now. And... Um, Someone connected me. I'm friends with the Maharana of Udaipur. It turns out he's the king of the, he owns the whole city. So I go with my friends and I mean, he's the king. It would be like someone said, here's Queen Elizabeth, a friend of mine. And you're like, wait, Buckingham Palace is hers? So this guy, and he's the religious leader. So I'm like, and it turns out he says, you will stay for dinner. Okay. So we go into dinner and there are like hundreds of people there. And he's walking there and people are like, you know, they throw the yellow flower. I'm like, I'm trying to talk. So we go and he says, I heard you wrote the episode with Smelly Cat. And I'm like, wow, this is really far ranging. So he said, you are, you are funny. I'm joking around that meanwhile, he's the religious head of, of the whole region and he's drunk out of his mind. I'm like, get your hand off my leg. I, I, just, <laughs> I mean, unbelievable. So he said, I would like you to perform your standup. I said, I don't perform standup. I mean, there are like 300 Indian nobles screaming and yelling, I don't perform standup. And he insists. And so I said, well, oh let me God. give you an example, you know, of one of my jokes. And he said, that would be, so I whispered to him, which is a joke I was pitched on Roseanne, it never went. Um, I went to a bad abortionist and he killed my inner child. 
So I can't believe that didn't make yeah. it. No, <laughs> got the performance. <laughs> so that was my last adventure in stand-up. Anyway, um, so the book comes out, great. I'm around comedians and I realize I really desperately want to be in comedy. Okay, wait, let's go back. So you were interviewing Stu Smiley. Perfect right. name, by the way, for a guy who works in comedy. Unbelievable. And then I think the Al Franken character, Stu Smalley, was he might have had a correct. That's again. that's totally that's totally correct. Yes. So yes. Um, but I loved Stu. Um Great and book. You know, he was, he had, not all people felt that way um, because, you know, I'm sure there was jealousy, whatever. I love him. So I think he's a wonderful guy. Um, I, uh, when I interviewed him, I thought, well, you know, at some point, maybe I'll give him a call, you know, and see what's going on um, in comedy after the book. Um, and so that was, he was my, in at the Comedy Channel. When it was starting, I made the call. Um, but I'll tell you about that. If I, if I, can I go? Um, yes, yes. I, as a way to get away from that, I was doing promotion on Howard Cosell's show about my book. I run into Dick Ebersol on the street as I'm going there. Wait, the Howard Cosell, the, the radio show? Yeah, okay. Because he had a show so, called Saturday Night Live with Howard Cosell exactly back in the day. Right. Exactly right. Unrelated to any of this, but go ahead. Sorry. Exactly. Um, and then there was the other show, Saturday Night. Anyway, um, yeah. so he says, you know, I'm doing this new show later with Bob Costas. And I said, well, you know, I'm kind of doing comedy stuff. Well, we're going to have funny people. So it turns out he hires, the other person is Lori Zacks. So I go from my book there. And I'm the person kind of who's, who's producing the comedy people. And it was great until I realized <laughs> I'm around comedians again and all I want to be is a comedy writer. So um, from there, um, I call Stu Smiley when I hear the comedy channel is starting. Hey, remember me? I'm the lady who interviewed you. And so I go there really you know, not having done anything like this and Stu hires me. Um, and then shortly after my best friend, Lori Zacks is hired at Ha doing the exact opposite job. I'm there to, oh. you know, get talent and everything. Um, and again, I, I had the best time, you know, and I heard the interview with Gail and I knew Gail and she was another person. I didn't know what the hell I was doing. So I thought, well, there are other, you know, not other, but there are smart people I know who don't really know anything about TV. Let me recommend them to Stu. Um, and <laughs> so that's that. And the only reason I knew Gail is that Lori David, who was then Lori Leonard, started something called The Breakfast Club in New York. And it was her, me, Gail Berman, Carolyn Strauss, who went on, you yeah, know, Strauss, Game right. of Thrones, right, right. Um, and some other people. And uh, we met every Friday morning um, at, what was the name of the hotel? Um, I'll think of it, but 
that's how I got to know basically everyone in the second phase of my career. Art, what was your impression when you heard that we had hired uh, Bonnie? Remember? Well, you, I, you know, I heard it from Stu Smiley. He said, yeah, I just hired somebody. I said, who'd you hire? He said, talent. I said, well, who is she? Or he said it was a her. I didn't assume. Um, and he said, uh, Betsy Bournes. I said, well, what, where'd you find her? She wrote a book. <laughs> I said, she wrote a book? Wow, that's so cool. I didn't even know you could write a book. I thought just books appeared somehow. And she actually wrote a book? He said, yeah, about comedy. So I, I hired her for talent. I said, man, I would, I can't wait to meet her. She's like literate. And that's, that's before I met you. Wow. And I was, I was, I was so excited that we had someone on the staff who was literate. Wow. And then a comedy book, no, no, no less. I can't believe you read my book and still say I'm literate. No, I read your listen. book and you're, you're quite literate. I think oh, I you're literate. Book. No, you're literate. No. Um, <laughs> Who's literarer? <laughs> You are the literatiest of literature literists. Anyway. No, no, I thought that was really cool. And then, of course, you went on to wear your hat. So I was always, you know. I it was, was very, I actually, yeah. I have a picture of uh, that Akira Yoshimura, who designed the building that the Comedy Channel was in. One of many pictures he drew of me uh, with different hats every day. Um, and How cool so is that? I, I, I think Stu hired me because the hats. That's still my theory. Um, ah, we need a hat wearer here. It'll be like mini Pearl. So um, were you excited to be to be hired, even though you were you were adjacent to all the comedy, but now you're you're in a better environment, right? right. Even though you're not a comedian. It was great. Yet. I was in a building surrounded by comedians, but I wasn't a comedy writer. So it was a little Schadenfreude. Right. Um, but I came on and I have no idea what I was hired to do. Honestly, everyone else. <laughs> we know we didn't were, know what we, we were doing either. We've <laughs> heard that from so many people at the comedy channel. It's a running thing. What made it fun? It was, I mean, I went in there, I'd never seen really a studio, you know, I'd looked at Saturday Night Live and Costas, but like being in a studio with surrounded by other shows. And I think I tried to figure it out. Other people weren't sure what they were doing there. I didn't know what my job was. Like you wrote a book. I love it. Come on board. <laughs> well, I don't know. I know how to unload trucks. Who was your, who was your boss? Stu. Right. And and I was I then I started to explore and it's like, well, we don't really have talent so much. So I was in charge of talent booking. Um, and then I sort of switched over to producing everything that wasn't produced in the studio. And I just kept changing my business card. That's all I know. I was like <laughs> talent booker. Then I was executive talent booker. Then I was the lowest level of producer. Then I was executive producer. Um, and so that's what I did like the 30, 60, 90s, which was. Those were, those were truly, I have to interrupt you for one second. They were, first of all, now realizing it was you, it's all you because it was Richard Lewis, it was Gilbert Gottfried, and for our listeners out there, and I, I'll play some of the audio of it. It was fast-paced, right? They were called literally 30, 60, 30, 90s because we wanted different lengths to, right. to fill in I was in trying slots. to create MTV like the, the equivalent of MTV videos in comedy. And so they were short and it was, you know, I tried to have them do original material and I don't know that it worked for the reason I wanted it to work, which was you can play a music video 50 times a day, 
but you kind of get the joke once you hear it. <laughs> no, but you so know what? Like, let me, let me, it went beyond that. I got to say, and, and having seen some recently, because Vinny and I, we just, you know, we. <laughs> I digitized all my VHS. We just, we just get nostalgic. We watch all the old stuff, but um, you know, they, first of all, it was presenting stand-up comedians in a way we, you never see stand-up comedians. Beautifully I mean, shot. Not against a, a brick wall with a mic in front of an audience. They're talking to the camera. And, you know, some of these people really, really did a great job of relating and telling these jokes and telling the stories. And it was terrific. So yeah. it was another way to view stand-up. And I, we said, thank you, Betsy, for this. Yeah, you know who else loved it? The sales guys. Because, you know, it's very hard to to condense the network into a three-minute sales tape that conveys. Because you got Mystery Science Theater, and you have to explain who the characters are. Funny, hysterical, but maybe not in a 30-second increments. Right. And then we threw your stuff in there, and the whole thing came to life. So they were uh, super important. Yeah, they were great. Well, they were great. You're very nice. Um I, I have to give credit to Diggins Buxenbaum, who, uh, I mean, I think Diggins. I interviewed him because of his name. I, I was like, I just want to meet Diggins Buxenbaum. Um, <laughs> They're not a law firm? <laughs> uh, exactly. Diggins Buxenbaum and Buxenbaum. I don't know. Um, <laughs> the old joke. I'm calling for Buxenbaum. He's not here. I'm calling for Bux. Oh, yes, Buxenbaum. <laughs> you get but, a Buxenbaum um, and I'll get a Buxenbaum and I'll see you in court. Exactly. <laughs> okay, you're funny, but I'm just saying. Anyway. Um, Go on. So Diggins, I love him. He's also sort of a comedy um, aficionado. So I didn't know about editing or lighting or, you know, crews. And that's where I learned everything. Um, and we had the first person, the person who I credit for actually giving me the um, confidence to be a comedy writer was George Carlin who did a 30, 60, 90, and I got to hang out with him. When I got back to New York, he sent me a dozen roses mm. with a note saying, you know, for a person in charge, you're really funny. And yes. what a compliment. that was, I, okay, maybe I can do this. And, oh, how I, you know, I, he, I don't think he ever knew. I'm sure he never knew. Maybe he didn't remember that, but I'll get teary, like that was the first person who said you could do this. So anyway, we used to go out to LA, or I should say, I used to go out and basically the four seasons, cause HBO had money um, that I think they didn't put into the comedy channel, but they put into me, which was very important because I would stay at the four seasons and it the, the, the restaurant there was my office. I mean, I was actually, they'd go the usual. I'm like, wow, I expect that at a bar, you know, at O'Malley's for the Four Seasons. Um, the usual hooker? Exactly. Well, it was that, by the way, the regular, yes, Bill on the bar stool. So <laughs> I, I remember interviewing everybody, Bill Maher, you know, just the gamut. And I would go from doing the 30, 60, 90s as a producer to being the executive in charge of, of trying to get Bill Maher to the network. Um, and it was unbelievable. Um, my favorite one was Carl Reiner. I remember that one. Did you see that? And yes, I remember that. I saw one. them all. I don't recall that one. Well, by the way, do you have an archive of them by any chance? Have I you actually saved them? talked to Diggins recently, and for some and, and for some reason, he can't put them on the internet. I would love to see yours because I. Can't Why can't them. he put him on the internet? Is he worried about legal? Things? I think, I think so. 
Um, you should put them on, and then if they I take it down, they take it down. But right. you can't, you, you know, what's we'll, the we'll I, I couldn't make, I couldn't get him to do it. We'll have a talk um, with Diggins, but he yeah. has a whole library, huh? Yes. He has all of them? Well, well, you I, know, can I, they should be donated to the Jamestown Comedy Museum because that's an incredible, have you heard about that or been there? Yes, I of mean, course, sure. I mean, that, that, that place is you, you right. know, that's your book come to life. There's a whole right. column. Well, can I get a Wikipedia page, by the way? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Never got a roast. Never got a dinner. Exactly. Never My got favorite a Red Bettons ne never got a dinner. Uh, Amelia Earhart, who says, forget <laughs> about me. Look for my luggage. Never got a dinner. Nothing to do with any of it. I actually <laughs> had a dinner with him finally. You did uh, with Red Bettons? I was on Roseanne. Some of the writers invited him to lunch at Jerry's. We were all, you know, loved him. And he said something, never got a dinner. It's like, we're actually buying you dinner. It's hard <laughs> to tell that anecdote at the time. Um, he's crushing the comedy. All right, so so you're at so you were at Comedy Channel, right. and then the merger happens with 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 Ha, right. and one of your best friends and a mentor and someone who was very kind to you, Lori Zacks, is now her company is merging with ours. Did you you obviously stayed for Comedy Central because the 30s, 60s, 90s, you didn't? I didn't no. stay. I'm I'm the person who in every job wanted to be a comedy writer and would take the job. I mean, if you look at my career, it's like, wow, interesting job. And then I would always leave because I really wanted to be a comedy writer. Um, but until George Carlin, I really didn't have the confidence. So in every job where people were getting fired, I would leave because I was ready to try to be a comedy writer. And every boss said, no, 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 we're not gonna fire you. And I'd say, I know, I'm actually leaving. So I left before that. Um, before the merger? Is that yeah. right? Wow. Oh, because, you know, it's so funny. Those 30s, 90s, we milked them out well into the merger, too. They aired on Comedy oh. Central, too. We just changed the logo. Wow. I didn't know yeah. that. Yeah. Um, but just to, wow. just to pause here, you left Comedy Channel with a whole lot more confidence and a whole lot more understanding of the business and a whole lot more everything. And I just want to also note that you know, the number of people who ask Vinny and me, like, how do you get into the, how do you get into comedy? How do you get into business? We usually say, I don't know. But if they were going to follow your rules for getting in, you spill a drink on somebody who's, you know, who might be able to get you a job. You hang around the crew of, or outside, you know, place you want to work. I mean, all the things that, that you did are just, none of them seem like they're a straight line to be a comedy writer. Well, that you're very nice. And I, I, my suggestion to people I get asked a lot is you want to live next door to Kathy Tuckman in Indianapolis <laughs> who knows someone whose cousin knows someone who knows Barbara Lieberman. But other than that, I honestly tell people the way in is to find people who somebody helped um, when they started. And I will always take calls from people because the first person who hired me was nice enough to take my call. And literally, I know so many people who are in the business who someone was nice to them. And if you can find those people who kind of remember their first in, um, they're around there. Um, I think Lori's one and I think Gail Berman is one. Um, and so anyway, that's something I learned along the way. And it's, it's not just what comes around, goes around. It's 
it's just being nice, honestly. It's just being a nice person. Well, that puts a whole different face on the business for a lot of people because, you know, so many people in comedy and in the business talk about how unnice it is. Right. And how cutthroat it is and how miserable it can be and everything right. else. And so I've seen that. Very- I've seen that too, but, and I'm not saying I'm the, you know, I'm, I'm not saying I'm the nicest person in the world. I'm not even saying I'm nice, to be honest. Forget the world. But it's a much nicer business if you're nice. Because no matter what the bad show business people do, you actually get to pull other nice people into your orbit because a lot of people that you talk to are going to end up being your boss. And then there are not, you brought nice people in. I mean, it ends up being 1% of the business, but you know, it's the top 1%. <laughs> We're familiar. I think another thing that's important with your career is just get in the building, whatever the job is, even if it's cracking nuts or whatever, because you know, your neighbor, helping who knew someone got you there now someone's going to replace that neighbor it's going to be someone else that you're working with whether it's an interview with Stu Smiley that ends up into a job well my phase after the comedy channel was because of Stu Smiley which is who I called again he was hired by Barry Diller and Peter Chernin to go to Fox in Los Angeles I didn't know that yeah and then I was in New York and I, I, again, really wanted to be a comedy writer and all the shows were in LA. And, but you know, it's like, what? I'm gonna spend the money to move to LA. I've got to do this. So I went out to LA, I called Stu and I went to LA and met with him. And they were looking for a current executive. And so he introduced me to Peter Chernin and Barry Diller. And Barry Diller, again, I was really not hip with my uh, interest in Slappy White as a kid in Indiana. The only other picture on my wall was of Barry Diller. I'm not kidding. Is that right? I way. worshipped You're him. You are the only person who had a Did Barry you think Diller. he was married to Phyllis Diller? Were you confused? What's going on here? <laughs> my favorite that? Phyllis Diller joke, and you can kind of tell by my hair, is at some point she came out and said, this isn't hair, it's nerve endings. Um, <laughs> she was... She was in my book. I did her for interviews. She was in your book, absolutely. Yes. People don't know she was an opera singer. True. And she had an incredible figure, which we learned from Judy Gold. Unbelievable. Exactly. <laughs> so, Stu, I go out there and I'm like, you know, there's stars walking around. And I'm like, Barry Diller. Because I remember reading about him at Paramount and the Killer Dillers. And again, not popular in Marion County, Indiana. Um, it's like Herzl. Everyone thought, is that your uncle whose picture's up? Um, <laughs> so for some crazy reason, they give me a script and it was a show called, uh, it was um, The Life in Beverly Hills or something, which ended up becoming Beverly Hill 90210. And I had never seen a script before because, you know, Saturday Night Live, they're not half hour scripts. Right. Nothing. Um, the Comedy Channel, there weren't half hour scripts. So I'm thinking like, they're gonna move me out to Los Angeles and pay for everything. I better like, and there were, I couldn't get a book that said how to read a Back script. the library for you. <laughs> exactly, because it was there. Um, so I just figured, what the hell? And my note, my main note was, it should really be about the parents. <laughs> <laughs> 
What an insight. Thank you very much. Right. Oh my and thank, God. thank God, uh, someone who read it was stupid enough to agree with me. Um, <laughs> but Stu really pushed me. He got me hired. And they paid to move me from, I'm like that woman who's like sleeps away the top, but apparently no one's interested in sleeping with me. So I just keep <laughs> meeting with the right people. Um, and they didn't want to sleep with me. So to get rid of me, they hired me. But I end up at Fox and I still, you know, I don't know anything about scripts. You're hired in current programming. You're supervising seven shows. What? I know I literally and for people who don't and current the current job has been discussed a lot here because that's what I did with Letterman for all those years and Lori Zacks. I remember and you were also very funny on Letterman. I remember uh, well Elvis. Yes. Oh, fat Elvis. Uh, oh, I remember sock puppets. Uh, anyway. Yeah, they were. Well, but they were obviously it was great because they were great writers on the show. But the current executive, that's a job a lot of people don't know that it's actually even something they should aspire to. But it's a microcosm of everything you are. You may not be the executive who's developing the show, but once the show gets bought and a pilot is done from episode two onward, you're the you're the person. You're the one who has to help realize everyone's visions. The the network's right. vision, which is not very creative sometimes, and the creator's vision, which sometimes is at cross purposes with the network. So that's you in the right. middle for, for drama and comedy, right? Not just comedy. I, I was so excited. One of your shows is Married with Children. Oh my God, that's the greatest what I've always wanted to do. And cops. Well, I don't really know, you know, hey, whore, give me the crack. It's like, that's a good line. It stays. And I always tell, I always tell friends, my some of my friends who's, who I'd walk in the house and there's a messy kitchen. And I'd always say, this is always like the first scene in Cops where it's like no kitchen except it's piled with Coke and people are doing money. And anyway, um, so I had a variety of shows. I had The Simpsons. Um, oh, married with children, a show called Haywire, which we literally change the format every week. Um, it's like, it's this, it's that. And, um, you know, so it was, it was different shows. And then, uh, the, the, the one, um, with Gary Kroger, where it was stand up again. Um, and it was hosted, um, oh my gosh, well, I'm, I'm completely blank. Jamie Masada's club. Um, on sunset anyway this is good telling you in new york it's like on third and schmingy um, <laughs> but uh a little known street in la um but uh so i was doing those and then i got a brilliant idea let's do a stand-up show with music in a different city every week so kind of sell the idea and I realized my job, I still have the seven shows. My job isn't hard enough. I have to go to a different freaking city every week to supervise it. So I'm like calling in notes to married with children from Alaska. It was the craziest thing. Um, and so I, I would, we would, I would book it, go to the city. And um, that's where I really, the first time I started writing was with the two writers on the show, but the executive producer of that show loathed me because I was the executive 
It's like, what are you doing talking to the writers? So we were actually separated. Like when you're little, I was given a timeout. <laughs> so I was in every city, like sitting at a table alone. And this um, is your idea, by the way. This is your, yes. this, you're the one that advocated for this, pushed it, sold it, but you still technically are a network executive. You're a so I've been to every city in America alone with a crew of, of a thousand people, but at a table alone. Oh, that's um, And But it was kind of fun, you know, because it was sort of like a little bit like Mata Hari, I'm hiding from her. And, um, you know, anyway, it was- What was the show called? What was this? This. I am complete. You'll have to look it up and edit okay, it. Okay. Who, who hosted it? I think it was, it was called The Death of Betsy Bournes. It was a different <laughs> host. It was a different host every right. week. I just remember going to Mardi Gras with Sinbad. And if you think Mardi Gras is crazy, try to go with Sinbad. Yeah, that sounds, um, that sounds crazy. It was, but it was- I, you know, it's like, we'll always have Paris. I'll have, I'll always have Mardi Gras with Sinbad where every five minutes I thought I was going to die. Um, like the crowds and the people are throwing beads in my face. It's like India again, you know, like <laughs> <laughs> unbelievable. I, and I'm not a drinker. I remember getting so drunk out of fear and, and being isolated from everybody um, that I may be wrong. I think I threw up on Sinbad's shoes. Don't quote me, but, uh, <laughs> you know, and everyone else in New Orleans. So it was an amazing experience. And, you know, I'm calling in cops like, no, not that Coke dealer, that Coke dealer. And <laughs> we need the good looking whore. But Meanwhile, how did you navigate married with children with standards and practices? Like, it's hard to do that remotely because, I mean, you really have to be on the set right. uh, for the table reads and to give notes and and when they want someone to yell out, it's you. Right. And there you are in this, uh, you know, segregated at a restaurant uh, following your stand-up dream. I mean, there's a theme here. <laughs> the worst was being on a cruise, by the way. And I remember <laughs> sitting alone, you know, on a cruise with everybody passing like, hey, do you think this is funny? Notes to the writers. Um, but so I, I, when I was in town, you know, I would go to Married with Children and or you know, the Simpsons, I would go visit their bungalow. But what I realized was I was the person getting yelled at for not giving notes and then getting yelled at for the writers. Like, and I realized, well, you know, usually the writers are funnier than the people yelling at them with notes. <laughs> so I felt a little guilty, um, but it was a, gr I mean, it taught me about half hour. Um, and, and so I, it was amazing because the network had been launched, but it was new, like the Comedy Channel. And my idol, Barry Diller, was a genius. I mean, he was a genius. He was also the scariest man I you could have imagined. And we would have the Tuesday meetings with Barry Diller and Rupert Murdoch at the head of the table. I mean, these two at the head of the table. And grown men would leave the meeting weeping um, I'm not kidding. And one got yelled at by Barry Diller in the meeting. And then I saw him at lunch in the commissary and they're having lunch with an agent and Barry Diller came over and said, as I was saying, oh, and it happened again. He so, would throw telephones at people, I hear. Do you know? Oh. Yeah.
I think he I think he threw a you know those those English uh boxes, the red phone box. I think he threw right. one of those boxes. <laughs> yeah, he, he was he definitely threw things. And I, I will say that Bob Creek, who was the president of Comedy Central, oh, first right. president, was probably in the room several times and uh had telephone marks on him because I from what I understand, right, Vinny? Yeah, I think there's a, he put a frame he around left. in the he wall. Left. Yeah. He left, um, I think, I think uh, Barry Diller told him to leave, but he, you mentioned Barry Diller around him and he'd start shaking. Niagara so, Falls, slowly. Like, really. So that's why I thought it was so funny that you're like, he's a big hero to you and to Bob, he was like the devil incarnate. So. Well, my, my comedy career can be summed up in, you can be my hero and the devil incarnate in one person. Um, right. My favorite stories are, once he had the person in charge of the numbers and the guy went up and literally broke down. I think it was, um, I don't know, maybe it was cops. We're naming like, names here. <laughs> this, this is the group. Yeah. Uh, this is the group. PTSD. Um, it's like this age is watching. This age is watching. Oh, it's the researcher. They do the demographics. Exactly. And so the numbers were pretty good. And I just remember Barry Diller, again, slowly I turned. Yeah. Looking at the numbers and he could read statistics like a human calculator. And he said, so what you're telling me, and he's looking at every, you know, it's by, it's by ages of five years, is that we are the biggest hit with zero to five-year-olds. <laughs> I don't know, somehow that was in the statistic. I think their parents were watching. Okay, that was the first weeping episode. It was just, and to his credit, Rupert Murdoch didn't say much, just sat there and like, oh, this is fun. I, I, the craziest. It's incredible to think that you're in a room with Rupert Murdoch who ends up becoming the, the evil Lord Master right. of all the things he He was afraid done. of Barry. He didn't talk. But I still worshipped, I swear, I still worshipped him uh, and still do. He's a genius. And, yeah, I get it. You know, all right, so people have their bad bad qualities. They destroy a couple thousand lives. The guy's a genius. Um, but so- It's for a good cause. Thank you, thank you. Um, finally, someone someone knows the devil has his good side. Um, so I'm there and there are changes and I, this is it. I am gonna be a comedy writer, done, I'm done. And so I say, I'm quitting. And so my boss says, no, 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 you're not getting fired. And I said, I know, I'm quitting. So I left and I had nothing. I'm in LA and they, like a lot of people didn't like me because I was the current executive. So it's like, it's not only that I don't know the people, it's like, ew, you're the suit. Right. Um, and so- You represent bad news. Exactly. It's either I don't like what you're doing or you're canceled because someone else approved the show that's the, that's the, uh, the good people. Um, but I was not going to be a happy human being if I didn't do this. And so I just quit and I started writing scripts. Of course, I took a course on how to write scripts naturally. But um, you had some good training there too. I mean, you, because now you've got, you've got married with children, which is a prototype sitcom, right. like, you know, the kind of thing, things you went on to do. So you right. had a good template. And I had good people um, who 
again, nice. Okay, my other child. I'm not That's even okay. actually a mother. I don't know. They're, they're, they're misguided. I'm a horrible mother, and they're literally <laughs> calling to say. Put them on speaker. We'll take oh, care of I'm getting interviewed uh, for a podcast. Can I call you back? Yeah. <laughs> Love you. <laughs> <laughs> I wish people could see how awesome she looks doing all this right now. Okay, <laughs> so by the way, great. I have another son, Abraham. I, you know, I, I try to keep my Jewish thing hidden. Abraham and Sarah Shapiro are my twins. Uh, and Ezekiel is the other one. So it's like literally, I've gone, now that I'm in show business, not Indiana, oh, I'm going to Jew it up, my friend. Trust me. Yeah, you are definitely um, down on the Jews. Jew it up. Uh, you might not want to quote me on that. Anyway, um, so, <laughs> so so you're taking you're taking courses in comedy. What was it? What, how many years had elapsed since you started a comedy channel to the time you quit your job in the business uh, to become a comedy? It's about ninety three. It's about ninety three at this point, right? Well, it's, I'm I'm uh, just asking. How many years I, is it? Okay, I left the comedy channel to and moved to L.A. in ninety. Right. I left my job at Fox after a year and a month. So it had been a year and a month from being like the big executive person at the comedy channel and the, the, the current executive at Fox, a year and a half to going from, you know, like a good position in show business to- And a good career trajectory. Fox. Yeah. Yes. So I had, I'm the best, you, you're talking about my career trajectory. I am, a genius at downward tra trajectories too. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm like a water slide. Sometimes it goes up when I have no idea why, but woo, woo. So I literally have nothing and I'm just writing scripts and Lori Zacks hires me, my first writing job on Paul Provenza's show on Comedy Central. The, uh, was that the A-list? It was, uh, it, no, it was uh, Comics Only. Comics Only, yep, right, comics okay, only right. okay. And I couldn't believe that I could write and not be isolated on a cruise ship. It was unbelievable. Oh. But, you know, I was the girl writer and nobody's fault, but I was really aware of being the girl writer because there were just, there were guy things and it was just, like there was when Madonna's documentary came out, you know, there was the famous scene of her in bed with all the people in the show. And we did, you know, a parody of it. And I was the girl, <laughs> the girl in bed with all the male comedy writers. And it's like, well, I don't know. It doesn't seem like comedy writing. And I was also one of the hookers when Buckwheat got shot at Saturday Night Live. So it's like, you know, oh I God. used to be in the girl. Did, did but, you feel the did you feel the pressure from the guys? I mean, you know, that was around the time Christopher Hitchens famously said women can't be funny. Right. And uh and, and there was that that I don't know if you read the book, The Only no, Woman in the Room, you know, by by Rita Lakin, Lakin, I don't know. And and she was talking about being a comedy writer in the middle of all these guys and how tough it was. Right. Was it, it tough? Was it, yes. Why? And, and it's, it's not, I again want to say it's not their fault. Um, I felt when I got in, became a comedy writer, there were very few African-American writers in the room. Uh. I, and by that, I mean none on any shows. Um, and I think it was similar being an African-American writer in the room is very much like being the woman in the room people aren't necessarily sexist or racist. It's that they're not 
used to feeling comfortable with people who aren't like them. And a woman is just not like them. And a room is the most dirty, vulgar, disgusting, offensive place in the world. By the way, I've never felt more comfort than in a room. I, I'm known as the most, I'm known as one of the few women who is more disgusting than any guy. So that's how so, you dealt with it. You just kind of went right to where they were. And right. wrote, Which was I, organic. I, it was the way you were. You yeah, weren't playing. Yeah. I was like this again, you know, slappy yeah. white. Like I was telling the, the offensive jokes in kindergarten. So, but again, not their fault. It was just, it was not, I wasn't one of them. And you know, it was, it was really an introduction to, it's not necessarily that people are sexist. It's that you're just not the group that they're used to hanging out with. Um, and it's a very, it's less so now, um, but it was a very male business. And um, on that show, they were very nice to me, but I really felt uncomfortable. Um, and like my voice was different than the guy's voice. And that, um, that show was, was also uh, like, like a sketch comedy talk show, right? It wasn't like truly, it was scripted, but in little bits. It wasn't like, like right. sitcom-y. Right. We would write the funny premises. Um, and there was a bit on the show where Rip Taylor would come in for no reason, you know, and throw glitter at everybody. And so I just started writing a lot of stuff that involved glitter. That was sort of, maybe because it was shiny, that was the girl stuff. It's like, oh, there's somebody who's gay and throws glitter. Betsy, let's go. Um, so a lot of boa material, um, but you know, it was great. And Fred Wolf, who went on to Saturday Night Live was the head writer and he was the funniest person. I mean, ridiculously funny. And he did a bit once that I still think is just, it makes me laugh. He was going to be uh, Paul Provenza's Ed McMahon. Mm -hmm. And he was on the show. And he said, you know what? I'm going to experiment with good laughs. Like Ed McMahon had, oh, 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 oh. And so we did a show where he experimented with different laughs. <laughs> and one of them was Paul would tell a joke and he'd go, I just remember Paul telling jokes. And it was like, There'd be a pause and then you go to Fred. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, and then a lot of Fred sneaking into the bathroom, you know, putting on women's clothing, dressing like a lion, you know, and then dressing in his clothes. So very interesting stuff. Uh, and then I got that and I have to credit Lori because after that, things kind of dried up. So I was in my, uh, back in my house with no income, just like, writing spec scripts. And I wrote a spec Seinfeld. And I knew Larry from New York. In fact, not to digress, but I know Gail told a story about the hot launch party. Right. And I'll tell you the most, the craziest thing. I went with Lori, even though she was at the Rival Network and Lori Leonard. And Larry had been after Lori for a long time. She was a comedy manager. She was in partners with, she was partners with Chris Elliott. Uh, yes, who, and that night we went to the party together and she said, I'm leaving with Larry. He's taking me home. 
That's the night they got together. Was it the ha? She said it with such disgust. Yeah. No, no, I think was that just, was her version of how great is this? No, it was just unbelievable. It was like, okay, they got together. I remember she invited us over like a couple of days later. I don't know if Gail was there, but it was like, we're together. And it was just like sitting there over bagels, like looking at Lori and Larry, like, I don't know. It was okay. It just, but, you know, that was the night. So, we are all somehow involved. Love it. Witness to history right there. Right. So. Uh, you write expect I read scripts. A, yes. And I. With the Larry. Right. And then I give it to my friend, Peter Melman, who I met because he interviewed me for GQ as Gilbert Gottfried's only friend. And I knew Larry and they weren't hiring people then. Um, you know, they had everyone. It was a very small staff, but. I got an agent off of it. Um, and, oh no, actually I got an agent too off of, I was the the current executive on In Living Color. And so when I left Fox, I wrote some In Living Color sketches and pitched them to Keenan. And he said, oh, these are good. Um, I'll consider you. So those sketches are who I sent to agents and I, was taken on by William Morris. That's so I got an agent, um, but still nothing for a year and a half. And then Jay Daniel at Roseanne, huge slush pile, read my script and said, and it was the number one show. Which one did they read? Had you done a Roseanne one? It was or? the Seinfeld. Yeah, because the trick is, most people, I don't know if people realize this, the trick is when you want to write for a show, you, you give them a spec script of another show because it right. might be too close. You know, exactly they, they might right. judge it harshly. Exactly right. So you're right. And you, you guys know this. You know this. I, But a lot of writers now say, here's, I've written my own show. I want to, you know, get on a show. And it's like, Maybe it's changed now, but they really want to see that you can write characters from another show because they're always going to know their voices better than you. Right, right, um, right. So he read my Seinfeld script. What was your, by the way, what was your Seinfeld premise? Could you sum it up? Because I'm fascinated by what um, that might have been. I, I, um, honestly, I think it's I, I think it's PTSD because I took it around like in a suitcase showing carpet samples <laughs> like in my Seinfeld that I, I, I blocked it. I just remember he met someone who kept calling him Jerry Seinfeld. That's literally the only part I can remember, which okay. now is like, it's not even funny, but there was some but, weird. But it, it obviously it, it got to the Roseanne people yes. and they liked what they what, what they read. Right. And so he said, this was Jay Daniel, who was sort of the guy above the head writer. Um, and, you know, he was, you know, he created moonlighting, like amazing stuff. Um, and so he said, okay, let's set up a meeting. And when I tell you, it's like, this is going to change my life. This is what I've always wanted to do. The day before the meeting was the Northridge earthquake in LA. And like the city was just demolished. And I think, oh, I'm getting to that meeting. So I go to the lot and I'm literally like, I'm driving, it's a disaster movie where it's like, ah, you know, pieces of the building are coming down on me. And you know, but people- the Seinfeld set like, was ah! destroyed. The Seinfeld yeah. set was destroyed, I remember at the time. Everything. And it was on the Radford lot and I get there and it's closed. I'm like, 
wait, my big shot in show business, you know, like boulders lying around. And, you know, people are in the streets. Like, the only thing missing was, like, uh, the only thing missing was Charlton Heston and Ava Gardner as his mother. Exactly. I mean, literally, people are like, get burning stuff. And, and you know, <laughs> so I get there and it's closed. But there's a guy at the gate. I'm like, I had an interview. So like the, the lot is closed. I said, I, I, I just started show business. I'm giving him more information than I've given you. The guy's like, they're not going to be there, but go ahead. And again, you know, the sign I'm passing, it's like earthquake where it's like, you know, people crawling out of the basement. Under it's like a universal tour, you know, where the water right. comes down. Yeah. The shark comes and attacks me. Let's um, milk this joke out. Let's just keep on going. <laughs> Come on. There's a fire too, right? It's like the inferno. I recall a fire. So, so, all right. So you're on the back lot, right? Yeah. And now you're in there, but you don't know if the people are going to be there at your meeting. I can't drive. There's literally debris. I parked my car and walked through the debris field. And I get to, I'm looking at the map, like, you know, it's like this building, that building. I get there. Obviously, the riders aren't there. And I go, you know, I'm knocking on doors. Literally, it's, it's, <laughs> and I open a door and it's Jay Daniel. He's there. And he had been there. I think he had been there so late editing that he just didn't have a chance to leave. And he stuck there. And I went and had the interview. And was he surprised to see you? Not as surprised as you'd think. <laughs> I mean, it's like, you'd think I'd get hired he, on this we, spot. waiting for you. He didn't right. really get I it was an earthquake either. Human flesh hanging off me. Just <laughs> like cats in my hair. You know, just unbelievable. And like Hiroshima, if someone, if I had an interview during Hiroshima and I lived in Hiroshima, I'd be the one with the script with no skin on my body. <laughs> And, and just like, and then turn into a, you know, the, the outline shadow on the street. But it's like, I don't care about your stinking bomb. I got comedy. <laughs> um, so I'm hired. And it was the most incredible thing. Um, you know, the water slide went up. It was a miracle. Were you following Roseanne at the time, her 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 career like you know obviously because your, your book about stand-up talks right. about the big johnny carson moment the david letterman moment so you witnessed all right. of that as a fan right all i heard about for the, the year previous to this was that she was a monster i heard the terrifying stuff and i mean i don't know if you remember it was horrifying. Um, I just remember hearing from the people there the year before that at a read through, there was a script and she didn't give notes, any notes. And at the end, it's like, Roseanne, do you have any notes? She got up, <laughs> farted on the script and walked out. Oh my God. Those are my notes. Oh my God. And I so was they Frankly, I was a little impressed she could fart on command. I'm just saying. But um, it's a gift. It's a, it is, you're right. Uh, it, it was, and you know, some of the things I thought, oh, that's bullshit. That can't be true. It was the most, it was, you know, I, I don't know if you remember, but at one point, 
she hired all of her stand-up friends to the point where I think we had 18 writers. And they then Tom was there and he said, I don't know who they are. So they made us wear shirts with numbers on them. So I just remember it being in the studio when this happened going like, I really want this job, but I have dignity. So <laughs> I just remember a shirt being put on me. About the thing, I think I got the lucky number 69 because honestly, it's like, imagine walking around like, hey, I don't have a name, but I am 69. <laughs> um, so I, everyone would talk to her trying to be friendly with her. And I thought, no, this is like a bear where if you look it in the eye, it eats you. And, or a shark, you know, like acknowledge the shark. I don't know if that's even true, but that's my plan. If I ever see a shark is like, just don't acknowledge it. It'll go away. Now that I think about it, not a It's good, a bad plan, by the way. It's a bad, bad plan. Like act like a shark maybe, but um, call for help. There are other things. So I never looked at her. And for two years, I didn't know who she was. Um, she didn't know who I was. And so I lasted because everyone else would try to be friends. And that was a bad mistake because eventually as with the shark, you'd make a mistake. And even though you don't really have to make a mistake with the shark, we all know it just eats you. But in this case, bad. So I just wrote my scripts and did it. And um, I think Eric Gilliland and I, by the third season, had were the only original writers. Everyone else had been, you know, uh, I don't want to say fired, but have you ever seen like those manual meat grinders? It was more like, or your mom making chopped liver. It was just like, this isn't just a firing. This is like the expulsion of the Jews from Spain in 1492. It's like, a, it's not a quiet firing. So I just like, I didn't know her. She didn't know me and I just wrote scripts. And that was the greatest experience. The friendships I forged because we were, you know, it was like Hogan's heroes. You know, we're in this place and the Nazis are killing everyone, but somehow it's funny. And I, you know, so it was amazing. I really learned how to write there. And you worked with Lori Metcalf, who's like the greatest, I think, TV actress of all right. time. Of all time. And John Goodman. Right. And you know, with Roseanne, I went through, you know, there were multiple personality disorder and literally we had to address her as Cindy. I'm just like, who wore- Are these stories that. told? I mean, is this out there? No, probably not. And it's foolish, I realized, to tell them your, now. Although I did do her new show. So- Yeah, I did. Um, yeah talk about that. Yeah. Talk about that. When she became the most lovely human being in the world, truly. Um, but that's ironic, which is another story. I mean, no joking, um, truly. But, um, so I was on there for three years and my impression of show business as a writer is like, you sit in a room, you're afraid to leave. And the meanest person on earth is your boss. And you just go like this every day. So that was pretty much, um, the thing. And except for, we had our own kitchen because we could never leave. So they actually hired a chef. Um, cause we would work till the middle of the night. I just remember the executive producer at one point, it was 
four in the morning saying, look, if we really focus, we can get out of here at a decent time. And <laughs> that's true. So, did you make her, did you, did you make her, did, did it, did it make you happy to make her laugh when, when your script yeah. at the table read and you're like, okay. To hear that Roseanne laugh was, you know, I, I don't want to compare it to when I heard my first child cry when it came out of me. Um, but close. Um, it was, it, no, it was such joy. Um, and she's so good. Um, I mean, it, it was in the chemistry with she and John that, you know, I'm sure it's like childbirth where I'm forgetting the bad stuff, but it was an incredible experience. And the thing with Roseanne, she went from living in a trailer to being the most famous woman in the world. And in her defense, it's really hard. Um, you know, the National Enquirer, ex you know, found her adopted child who nobody knew. I mean, not her, her the child she had when she was 17 right. and gave up her adoption and nobody knew. And they're like, here she is, Roseanne, you know, just she wasn't and she wasn't picture perfect you know like the you know the look i mean her whole and she wasn't overnight success she was the first fat lady who was married to someone who liked her <laughs> it was just unimaginable um and so she was just given crap from everybody but her talent was bigger than all of it and even though i was terrified of her I was still, it's a Barry Diller thing, honestly. I'm looking at a genius, like, okay. And she was never personally mean to me. Um, but, you know, I got to work with amazing people. Norm MacDonald was on the show. Um, you know, just Rob Euland, other people who are great writers, Eric Gilliland. Um, and I know I'm leaving people out and a bunch of funny standups who were not trained to write half hours, but were incredibly funny. Um, and. It was an unbelievable experience. And after three years, I thought I was going to stay. For a fourth year, Eric Gilliland had taken over the show. Um, and uh, there were, Ellen's show was starting, Ellen uh, DeGeneres. And I thought it was funny, so I was going to go on that show. And my, I got a call from my agent saying, you know, there's a show that's been on for a year, and it's a big hit. And I, it was friends and I, you know, really hadn't seen it because I was always in the Roseanne room. Um, but I m met this guy on a blind date who I knew I was going to trick into marrying me. And, you know, so it's like, and we both were interested in boxing. I was writing about boxing. He wrote about boxing, blah, blah, blah. He was a federal prosecutor and had never, I was the first person he met in show business. And I really wanted to impress him. We went out on a date and he was like, there's this funny show, Friends. Have you seen it? And I'm like, hmm, you'd like me if I went on Friends. So I went and interviewed with Marta and David. And I was like, that's why, I, this is definitely not out there. That's one of the reasons I ended up on that show. Um, I ended up marrying the guy, like but um, it, it was, I, you know, one of those things. And the sec, so I was there at second season and it, like that's when it just exploded. And it was unbelievable. Like I've never, I felt like Eddie Murphy the day after, you know, his movie came out, not that anyone recognized me, but it was absolutely 
I've, you know, insane. It just it was, was, it was, ins- it was, I remember at the time where, you know, when you sign, when you're an actor and you're, you're not a name, you right. sign a contract for five years for X amount of dollars, which is good money. But that show was so ridiculously popular after the first season that Warner Brothers was bragging about getting a million an episode for syndication. Right. And that pissed everyone off. The actors were like, this is crazy. We want right. more money. Right. And they, so that's and what they you were- walked into. Right. Uh, I don't recall saying that about myself, but, uh, <laughs> you know, it was not me taking comedy writing lessons alone in my place. So it was better, but it was, I was like, and thank God we don't have the Roseanne hours. Um, so I get there and it's like oh, the Roseanne hours, how I longed for the Roseanne hours. Um, it was the craziest schedule, but you know, it's like every joke is going to be perfect or we're not leaving. And, you know, it's a lot of people say that on shows, but on this show, it was true. You know, they were like, nobody left until it was perfect. And it was, I mean, just an incredible experience. And, you know, you, you don't know that you're part of something incredible until it's on for a million seasons and you're like, wow, I guess that was incredible. Well, that's this show is a, is a billion dollar industry. Yes. And, and I, all I know is it almost, you know, in India, the guy's going, who's the king of the city. So that's so, yeah. So, so, so like when you, when you pitched the the idea for, for, for that episode, originally it was going to be smelly. It was going to be a dog about your dog. Um, how excited are you to be at the paint the picture of like, I guess you, you pitched the idea, right? To well, do I that. was the, it was, I have to give credit. It was a lot, you know, there's a room. And so sure. it was, you know, I, you know, at least a Kudrow and everything is, everything is collaborative, but yeah, it was in my app. But yeah, but it's something that, you know, listen, yeah. your name is on there for a reason. I get that other people are pitching jokes and it's right. changing. So I app. always say, you know, that's that's the thing that's the thing nice writers say. <laughs> because it's true. <laughs> Be a dick for a second. Come on. You right. came in with Smelly Cat episode where, where people like what was the table read like for that episode or for or for that show in general? It um was unbelievable. And I actually my memory is pitching the baby on the bus in like that was my because I actually was left by my family like that when I was eight um and so that was the inspiration okay for that because for some reason we used to take camping trips every summer and we had a camper and I had one sibling and we were on Prince Edward Island where like you don't get off at a certain you point. weren't typical jews in indiana yeah. i gotta tell you you were the only yeah. ones there but you, you try to assimilate honestly you really the, did the camper gig is going to do it but the temple membership kind of gives you away but so my parents get gas and it's like you know all the kids are in there and they drive off and it's like i come out from the bathroom and they're gone oh my god and like they think i'm sleeping in back I think I was seven and don't realize until they get to the ferry and like I'm gone. It's been hours. And so I'm at a gas station on Prince Edward Island, but it was like a mom and pop thing, fortunately. 
So I go inside and knock on the door and say, they're all eating dinner and say, can I use your phone to call my grandmother? Cause there were no cell phones. So they had no phone. And I'm like in Miami. And they said, no, <laughs> close the door. It's long distance. Yeah. It's but expensive. Then I'm there, you know, three hours later and like there's food around. So I was like, um, can I have something to eat? No. I mean, I'm, I'm seven and I'm anyway. So like six hours later, um, or more, my parents drive back and I'm like, you know, there are two children, <laughs> not a big camper. It's like, this is where the driver sits. This is a couch. This is a bathroom. I can't fit in the silverware drawer. Um, and that was never adequately explained, but that ended up. Where was your sibling? I mean, you didn't. You said you had one sibling. Was it? I'm not it, saying we. I'm not saying we were close. I'm just saying. Apparently not. <laughs> so she, I think, actually fell asleep. Oh, and, well, that's her excuse. You know, this is a Dateline episode. I'm getting nervous. Really? Right. I'm calling right. the cops. Right. Uh, well, they wouldn't let me use the phone. I'm just saying. It's like it was horrifying. And I was thought, you know, I'm good at, you know, putting things away. And then, you know, we're thinking of episodes. I'm like, I have one. Um, so that's what that came from. Um, and so that's my main memory. Um, but I got to join uh, either BMI or ASCAP because of Smelly Cat. Yeah, that you wrote in with Chrissy Hind, right? Yes. They're all a part. That's collaborative, but and by the way, Chrissy Hind, the name of her character on that episode was Stephanie, and I named her that because my sister, when I was abandoned, that sister is Stephanie. Okay, so wow. that was tribute. That's so. So you don't when you're writing it, you don't even know that Chrissy's going to be in it, right? That they're going to hire Chrissy. Right. And 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 this thing has become. Do you get royalties from it? From okay, the song? that's my other issue. I, and I joined ASCAP just because I thought the name was funny. It's like an ASCAP. So, <laughs> it's a marketing. Right. Everyone and needs BMI, one. <laughs> BMI has BM in it. Like no one else chooses based on this, but ASCAP. Has anyone like, seen my ASCAP? Well, what <laughs> about CSAC? It's very anal when you think the about CSAC, it. There's CSAC too. Okay. Worse. Um, <laughs> like uh, which one of the anal references do I join? I, I, that's, my in, that's my foray into the music industry. Um, but I think I got one royalty, so I, I don't know. It, it's uh, it gets complicated. I, you know, I don't want to digress too much, but r real quick, speaking of royalties, because I don't, I, there was a time, you know, you hear about actors where they were, you know, on Mash for ten years, and then their royalties are down to pennies by the end, right? Whatever. How does it work? And I know writers probably get better royalties, but in a streaming world, do they just buy you out? because it's not number of plays anymore, right? It's playing a million times. It's, well, I, my husband created Goliath. That, it's another story. I married a mid-level bureaucrat, okay? <laughs> and then somehow I ended up with a big executive producer and I'm like, really? Talk about bait and switch. Um, but he did that um, Goliath on Amazon and you know, they don't tell you how many viewers. Right you get. And so it's a different, you know, he gets royalties from, you know, he did the practice in Boston legal and shows like that. So he gets royalties from those. Yeah. But, but your show sold for a half a billion dollars, yeah. right? So and, and, and you. Royalties and, based on their script. So I get the same script 
royalties as I got on, you know, Roseanne or anything. Really? Um, it's not based on like, you know, how much it's, uh, but, no. but how do they count the number of plays? I know I'm the, into the weeds here. I don't here, know. I, this out of I honestly, but... I have no idea and no writer does. Yeah, because you used to get paid. Oh, they reran your episode, uh, you know, the other night. Even on NBC, right. it airs once, you get X amount of dollars. Right. It airs the second time, you get X amount of dollars. And then a third and fourth, and then a syndication. Right. But when things are are, are on demand. Right. I <laughs> get, I get fr when Friends was sold, when it's sold to a different place, I get money. Okay, know, got for, it. So, but they can play it. However, yeah, so that times. that feels like you're bought out. Okay, I'll, I'll probably take this out. I was just curious about that. No, um, it's, I, I love to sound like I have no idea where the checks are coming from. It's you know, my okay. my if I I would name my company if the check clears. It's like that's why, you know, I'll write on a snuff film. Does the check clear? So, <laughs> hey Betsy, could you hold on a second? We just have to mm -hmm. take a quick break, and we'll be right back. Wow, Art, I had to call an audible there and uh, make this a two-parter. I hope I didn't throw you off. No, I could have listened for days, but, you know, um, luckily we, we, did. we did call it. We, <laughs> we did, but we, you know, we, we did have to make that a two point. Yeah, yeah, because uh, He's there's got a lot so to much about. more. There's no way uh, we could have rushed the second part. We already got a lot, especially that 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 book, uh, Comic Lives, which is a horrible title. But it's a because I keep on saying comic lives and I'm like, what is this? Uh, a, a serious look at, at, at a comedian who, who attempts suicide. But that book is a seminal book, even if only to me, because it covered so much ground and her telling of how she had the gumption. How's that word? Gumption to just good work to that book, you know, to write the book. So that was great. And we spent a lot of time on that. So anyway, super, super excited for people to hear the part two uh, next week. Till then, this is Vidi Favali. And this is Art Bell. And we are the Constant Comedy Podcast. Well, if we were constant, that interview would have kept on going. But even we have to break some time, take a break some time from being constant. So we're semi-regular. Sorry, I went up on a tangent there. Um, we'll uh, see you next week with part two of our great interview with Betsy Borns. Bye. How was that?